I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians inside our New Testament. Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay, and it is indeed, truly is a privilege, on a new Sabbath, a day that God gives His people to rest and worship, to come together and to be able to fellowship, worship, sing, praise, and give. We're currently in a sermon series in this letter in our New Testament. We call it 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. We're in a series called Wise Words for a Hurting Church because this was a hurting church. And God, the Holy Spirit, saw fit to put this in the text of the New Testament as a letter to all churches through the centuries to address a host of issues. We've learned that Paul is writing to this church that he helped start a few years earlier, and then he went on and moved over to Ephesus, which is in western Turkey today, and then he began to hear reports that this church had become a train wreck and begins a series of corresponding letters. That's why we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in our New Testament. This weekend, we're looking at chapter 9. And it's a section where Paul continues in some pretty strong language to confront this church about their immaturity, about their divisiveness, about their pettiness, their self-centeredness and their self-focus, and how toxic and destructive this church had become. Last week in chapter 8, if you look back at verse 9, Paul was confronting them for flaunting their rights and privileges. Their favorite cheer was, I have my rights. I can do what I want with my own life. Sounds a lot like today. Verse 9 gives us the background of that. In chapter 8, verse 9, Paul talked about how they were abusing their rights. And his whole point is this, verse 9, chapter 8, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, as we come to chapter 9, he continues to confront their narcissistic, self-centered version of the Christian life. That's what it was. And in doing so, Paul does something interesting. He offers us one of those rare moments in his letters, there's 13 of them in our New Testament, that are autobiographical. In nature, He opens up about his own life, his own background, his own spiritual disciplines, his own passion for Christ, and his own pursuit of holiness. And he does this to confront what they're doing. And as Paul opens up about his own life, here's what we see. We see a glimpse of what gospel transformation really looks like in someone's life. That's what we see. Paul gives us a glimpse of how the gospel, I love the word, transforms somebody. And he does this, and he's, he's usually, this is not his normal uh, mode of operation to show from his own life, although he does challenge people, follow my example. But here he opens up in a whole chapter about his own experience to counter the extremely distorted view of the Christian life that the Corinthians had. So in this chapter, we see three things that the Holy Spirit produces in a gospel-transformed life, meaning 
If you're here and you know Christ as Savior, not everyone does, I know that. But if you're here and you know Christ and you've been born again, the Holy Spirit has seized you, possessed you, and inevitably is moving you slowly on a track of holiness and life change. Young people, same thing for you. And if not, then there's a question whether you know Christ. And in this chapter, what Paul's going to do is show us what the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of true followers of Jesus. Three things Paul shows us from his own life. One, a pattern of self-denial. Two, a track record of serving others. And three, a passion to run hard. First, a pattern of self-denial. Again, in chapter 8, Paul is confronting them for abusing their Christian rights. And again, their cheer was, I want my rights. I have liberties. If I want to do this or that in the Christian life, I have the freedom. Paul's point in verse 9, as I said, is that a true Christian's rights end where they hinder someone else's walk. Not just where someone else disagrees, but truly if I am or you are causing another brother or sister in Christ to be hindered because of your example, Paul says, that's where my rights end. And now in verse 9, he's going to illustrate what a life of self-denial looks like from his own life. Verse 1 is composed of four rhetorical questions, which are interesting because in Greek they give you the answer up front. We don't do that in English. In English, a rhetorical question, the answer is implied. In Greek, you get it right up front. So here's four questions as Paul begins to describe what a life of self-denial looks like. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? The obvious answer to all these questions is yes. His point is, as an apostle, as a leader, as a preacher, as a missionary, he has certain rights and freedoms that are available to anybody in Christ. But he doesn't always use those rights. It depends on the context. It depends on the situation. This is just wise ministry, period. Seasoned leaders, seasoned pastors, seasoned missionaries know that the Christian life involves a certain amount of flexibility depending on your context, never abandoning Christian convictions and Christian morality. But within that, there's a room for quite a bit of flexibility culturally in Paul's point. Now, his point is, I don't always use these rights in verses 2 to 6. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, some were questioning whether he was a true apostle, surely I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Obviously, yes. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? Yes, as do the other apostles and Lord's brothers and Cephas, Peter. Peter was married. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? He then talks about the right to receive an income from his preaching. He's going to get into that. Something Jesus backs up in Luke 10. The New Testament historically has viewed these verses as justification for paying or supporting those in full-time ministry. That's been true throughout church history. But for personal reasons, Paul is saying this. I'm not going to be in financial relationship with you anymore. He's telling this congregation. Look at verse 12. And then we'll look at a couple other verses. But verse, verse 12, 
If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Obviously, answers yes. Then verses 14 and 15. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Again, he's probably alluding to what Jesus said in Luke 10, that the worker's worth his wages. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. And then one more verse, look at verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights. He keeps bringing this back to, I'm not making use of my right, specifically in this way, financial backing as a preacher of the gospel. Now you might say, well, now is this a prescription for all time? Was Paul saying preachers, missionaries, leaders shouldn't be paid if they're in full-time ministry? No, what Paul is doing is he's saying, in this situation, I am severing that tie for reasons. We've been encouraging all along in this series different commentaries. One of them is Thomas Schreiner's. Pastor Tim has done a good job. He's stocked it in our library, and we've given that to all of our community group leaders. Dr. Schreiner is a first-class New Testament scholar down at Southern Seminary in Louisville, and he has a great paragraph explaining why in this situation the Apostle Paul severed financial support. thought it was interesting. He said, quote, Paul's integrity in financial matters was of paramount importance in his ministry. He was probably at a stage in his relationship with the Corinthians when he did not want them to understand their relationship in terms of a patron and a client anymore. If the Corinthians, which that was very common in the Greco-Roman world, by the way. So in other words, when you have this financial relationship with a ministry like this, especially an apostolic ministry or a missions endeavor, it brings with it certain realities and dependencies. If the Corinthians thought of Paul as their client, expectations would be put on him that would limit his ministry. And if you talk to people today in full-time missions, especially cross-cultural missions, these same kind of dependency issues can develop. They're tricky to navigate. Now, backing up, looking at the first 18 verses, his call to self-denial, his showing that in his own life, what, what, what is his point here? What's, what's he saying? The answer is this. Young people especially hear this. The sooner you figure this out, the better. Paul is saying that one of the characteristics of someone who has been seized by the Holy Spirit, born again, possessed of the Spirit, is a growing pattern of self-denial. For the sake of Christ, for their own sake, and for the gospel. In other words, as someone is saved, back to our word, they are transformed. It begins slowly, but the trajectory is there. And the Holy Spirit, in union with Christ through them, begins to work a growing pattern of self-denial, dying to their own selfishness. What is the call of the unsaved man? My. My rights my agenda, my way, my, my, my. That's the secular agenda. That's the unsaved agenda. The holy trinity of our modern culture. Me, myself, and I. My, 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 my. What's the cry 
of the person who's born again. The cry of the cross is self-denial. Unless you have any doubts, here's how Jesus put it. I don't know how he could be any clearer. Whoever wants to follow me, so if you want to follow Christ, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's how Paul put it in his longest letter we have, Romans. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, do not let sin control the way you live and do not give in to sinful desires. Paul is calling us to self-denial. Now, I'm going to make my next comments pastoral, meaning they're addressed to all of us as if you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, we'll talk about that later, but if you're here and you know Christ, hear this. A lot of people sit in Bible teaching churches every single week across the fruited plain who profess to know Christ, but instead of a life of self-denial, what is evolving over the years is a life of self-indulgence instead, especially in a consumer culture that's marked by affluence. And Jesus said this is nowhere more true than when it comes to money, the very issue Paul's talking about in this first section. Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. Why? Because he knew that it could grip and seize and control our life. Last, summer, last fall, we did a series on the prosperity gospel, one of the most pernicious, toxic distortions of the gospel imaginable. And it's everywhere today. Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, on and on and on it goes, Joel Osteen. And the cry of the prosperity preachers is this, God always wants to bless you with more money and more stuff. And this leads many, even in Bible teaching churches, to get confused and think of this, that the more money and the more stuff I have, I must be more blessed by God. If you listen to what I call evangelical chatter, that's Bible-believing Christians chattery, it is almost inevitable that we connect growing affluence to God's blessing as an automatic assumption, even if the person has ignored critical priorities to get that money. In those possessions. Many simply take it as a given that increasing wealth, increasing portfolios, increasing stuff is an automatic sign of God's blessing. Now let me make a couple remarks from Scripture. Number one, and please hear this carefully, the Bible is clear money is not intrinsically evil. You've got to have it to live. That's clear in the Bible. The Bible's also clear in Proverbs that a reasonable amount of savings, a reasonable savings plan for the future is both wise and biblical. The Bible preaches against its hoarding and just accumulating for the sake of accumulating. There's even rare examples in the Bible of God giving certain individuals great wealth. These are rare exceptions, but they are there. You may be one of those exceptions. Having said that, when Jesus was on earth, Jesus was very clear that wealth is not usually a blessing. And it's almost always a curse. 
He said this over and over in a number of ways, that wealth is not usually a blessing, and it is almost always a curse, that growing accumulation, growing portfolios, growing piles of stuff is almost always a curse, usually a curse, rarely a blessing. And Jesus said this so plainly. He says in Matthew 19, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. That's designed to shock. I can hardly get a piece of thread through the eye of a needle, let alone a camel. The point is, you can't, it's impossible. It's impossible. It doesn't work. And here's what it means about prosperity gospel preachers. I'm, I'm going to connect the dots here. Follow this. Here's what it means. It means that prosperity teachers are actually bringing a curse on millions of people when they say, don't deny yourself, pile it up. Jesus says, that's a curse. And they say, that's a blessing. Somebody's lying. Somebody's lying. And somebody's doing a lot of spiritual damage. Throughout his ministry, Jesus regularly called attention to the massive dangers of increasing wealth. He didn't say it was wrong. He just said wealth is dangerous. And here's why it's so dangerous. Because wealth makes you keep buying more. Right? And it numbs our conscience in the process. It numbs your conscience and mine in the process. In Luke 12, another example, Jesus tells the story of a man who was piling it up. So much he had to keep building more barns. So kind of a future prophecy there of all these storage unit things that have popped up all over the world. And by the way, they're not just in America. They're everywhere. They're in Europe. They're in Asia. They're in South America. As the world's wealth piles up, these storage units just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus said this guy in Luke 12 just kept building bigger, bigger, bigger. And said, I'm going to indulge myself. And Jesus said, here's the end of the story. God said to him, you're a fool. And tonight I'm going to require your soul from you. You see, as you keep buying, as I keep buying, the only way I can keep doing it is telling myself this lie. God is blessing me. This is the Calvary Road. It's okay to keep buying because God keeps blessing me. So I'm going to buy up, buy bigger, buy more. And as my, here's the danger, hear this. As my conscience becomes numb, as your conscience becomes numb to this lie, you can end up doing horrible things that you never imagined. To keep the stuff coming, to keep the accumulation growing. Which is why Paul wrote these words in 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Hear the last sentence. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's why Jesus said wealth is almost always 
a curse. Philip Yancey, well-known Christian writer, years ago in Christianity Today magazine said this, very insightful comment. How can TV evangelists promise prosperity and security to the faithful when Jesus promised us a cross and sent his workers out as lambs among the wolves and left 11 of his 12 disciples to die martyrs' deaths. Close quote. There's a glaring contradiction. So the bottom line, truth-saving faith produces a pattern of self-denial. Now, if you are sitting here today and you're one of those that God has chosen, even though as you've honored him, he has given you wealth. I mean, we're all wealthy, really. We're in the 5% bubble in, in, in the world, in America. But let's say you have unusual wealth. Your question, what, what am I supposed to do? That's easy. The biblical principle, spiritually and financially, blessed to be a blessing. That means increasingly you should be looking for ways to invest and give it away. Invest it in the kingdom and give it away. Not all of it, but the more we get... The biblical principle is the more we should be an avenue, a conduit, to funnel it in to kingdom endeavors. That's what we should do with it. Second thing that Paul opens up about, after talking about self-denial, especially in issues of finances and money, he says the second thing the Holy Spirit is producing in true born-again Christians, if they're truly saved, is a track record of serving others. And this shows up in Paul's life. Matthew 23, 11 Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Paul is just showing that that's what he's doing. In Mark 10, 44 and 45, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The Greek word doulos is used there, not the word for servant, the word for slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So here here we go again. Paul is going to open up his own life autobiographically. In verses 19 through 23, and he's going to show you that he has a passion and a track record of serving others. And by the way, this is backed up in the book of Acts that narrates his ministry and in his 13 letters. Verses 19 through 23, a track record of serving others. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though myself, I'm not under the law. He means the Mosaic law. He's not under all the constrictors anymore of the Mosaic law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things... To all people, so that by all means possible, I might save some. That's his heartbeat. And I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now I want to pose a question to you. Here's the question. That's quite a paragraph calling us to this pretty radical lifestyle. And some have seen these kinds of sections in Paul and argued something like this. Well, that's for martyrs and saints and mystics and missionaries and pastors. That's not for normal Christian people, you know, the normal rank and file believer. 
The problem with that is that Paul offers his own commentary on these verses in the next chapter, and he shows us this isn't just something for super saints. This is the normal Christian life. If you turn over to chapter 10, verse 31, through just a couple verses, through 11, verse 1, Paul offers his own commentary on this very section. And his answer is that his own example is a summons to the normal Christian life. This isn't some super tier of Christian discipline. This is what the normal Christian life should look like. So young people, if you know Christ, this is what your life should look like. Middle age and old age and saints and everybody in between, this is what the normal Christian life should look like. A track record of serving others. Look at verse, chapter 10, verse 31, where he's going to say this is for everyone. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. So there's the, there's the call to radical obedience. So they may be saved. And then look at verse 1, chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Question, was Paul preaching at a pastor's conference here? <laughs> no. He's not speaking at a leadership summit. He's not speaking at a bishop's conference. He's not speaking at some church council. He's writing this to rank-and-file Corinthian professing Christians who were doing an awful job of living the Christian life. And he's saying, this is my example. Follow my example. This is for the normal Christian life, a track record of serving others. And probably like you, I love coming across stories of people who do this. World Magazine, which is a great magazine, by the way, has once a year on their front cover a Daniel of the Year, they call it. It's kind of their version of Time Magazine's Person of the Year. But World Magazine does a lot better job in who they pick. About 20 years ago, they picked a guy, uh, just a layman in poverty-stricken Sudan named Michael Yurko Nadi. Just a few months ago, they did an update on him, 20 years later. Very interesting. Uh, and it was very inspiring. For decades, Nadi had worked in very poverty-stricken areas, which is basically all of Sudan, but in his particular state, Blue Nile, a state in Sudan. And he had worked mentoring. And he's, this guy is a layman. Understand it. He's not a, not a pastor. He's not a bishop. He's not ordained. He's, he's, a, he's a layman. He's just a, he's a God-fearing layman. And he preached, mentored, discipled. This is normal Christian life. Taught others, loved others. Government came in, government forces, destroyed villages several years ago, burned all the crops, demolished the missionary compound in the area. So Nadi goes and takes all the rubble and forms it into desks and chairs and keeps right on teaching and mentoring. He said these words in the recent update. Christianity in Blue Nile, again, that's a state in Sudan, is very difficult. I remember a friend in Russia telling us this. We were in Russia with, several years ago, Becky and I, and one of the believers there said, it was an interesting phrase, the way it came over in English, God is difficult in Russia, she said. I said, what, what do you mean, God's difficult in Russia? She said, 
You guys in the West, it's pretty easy to follow Jesus. It's not in Russia. God's difficult in Russia. And that's his testimony here. Christianity in Blue Nile is very difficult. And then World Magazine goes on in this recent update and says this. Michael is now approaching 90 years old. He doesn't know his exact birth date. He's reaching the end of his days, much like he started, being forcibly removed by conflict and persecution. But today there are six churches that he helped start, including two in the camp where he lives. The church is growing and growing, he said, smiling into the iPhone camera. It's wonderful to hear such a joyful word, the world says, from an old saint who is living so far from his original home. Think you've had a hard life? Think you have a reason to grumble and complain and be bitter? No. This is the normal Christian life. And this is what it should look like, a track record of serving others, a growing pattern of self-denial. By the way, that's the only pathway to joy. The world says, hang on, grab it, get it, pile it up, and you'll be happy. And frankly, when you find people doing that, you find absolutely miserable people. It's people like this that beam with joy. Lastly, Paul says there's a third thing. There's a third thing, okay? And that is in verses 24 through 27. So first, growing pattern of self-denial. Second, track record of serving others. These things will be showing up in the Christian life because the Holy Spirit's producing the fruit. Thirdly, there's going to be a passion to run hard after Christ, verses 24 to 27. And again, I, I like the word transform. The, the, Paul is showing us that the defining mark of being transformed by Christ is a growing passion to obey Him. Not perfection, but passion. An eagerness and a willingness to discipline ourselves for holiness. Verses 24 to 27, he uses athletics as his example. Do you not know? Then in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. The prize here, scholars agree, is salvation. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, as I read that, I want you to hear something important. It sounds a little bit like, well, you have to earn your salvation. That your track record is important for earning your salvation. Now, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this, that the way I run my life does have eternal consequences. Absolutely. Why? Not because I earn my salvation by doing good things or good works, but because salvation, real salvation, is verified by my good works. That's his point. I said in the first service, I'll say it here, I've said it before, good works get poo-pooed in the evangelical church. It's an old Hebrew word. They get downplayed because we put so much emphasis on justification by faith alone and we downplay good works. Ladies and gentlemen, we should not downplay good works. They have a place and that place is they better be showing 
up in the lives of those who claim to be Christians. You see, justification is what theologians call monergistic. It means it's a one-way thing. The Holy Spirit acts on his elect, opens their eyes, and brings them to saving faith. But sanctification, the process of becoming holy, is what theologians call synergistic. Synergistic. It's a cooperative effort between the believer and the Holy Spirit. And we can quench the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul talks about the need to run the race of life well. The race of life has eternal consequences. Not because we're saved by good works, but because Christ has saved us from dead works to serve the living and true God. Let me give you an, in other words, in other words, what he's saying in this last section. Our running hard after Christ is the proof that we've actually been saved and the prize is eternal life. Now, unless you think, well, why does Paul write it this way? It sounds like you're earning his... The New Testament is full of this kind of language. Let me just give you some examples. Even though the New Testament is very clear, you say by faith alone and Christ alone, there is a very strong emphasis on, but there better be good works that follow or you're not saved. For example, Luke 13, 24, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Or John 6, 27, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast. That means keep going. Immovable, always abounding in in the word of the Lord. Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary, not, let us not be weary in doing well, for we will reap if we do not faint. Philippians 3, 12, here's, a, here's one that a lot of people go, huh? work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or Titus 2, 14, Christ gave himself to purify a people zealous for good works. That's what Paul's saying. There will be a track record in how I choose to run the Christian life. If you say you know Jesus, how you are running or not running will have eternal consequences. Not because that saves you, but it will be the evidence whether or not you're really saved. It's easy to, in Western culture, to say, I follow Jesus. The proof is in the pudding. Is that life being, is there a growing pattern of self-denial? Is there a track record of serving other people? And then lastly, is there a passion showing up of running hard after Christ? Are you running hard after Christ? That leads to our summons this morning. I mean, let's pull this together. What's the summons here? Well, this is a, this is a chapter with lots of summons. I'm going to narrow it down to two. Number one, the cross summons every sinner to repent and believe in Jesus to avoid the coming wrath. That is the underlying summons in all of Paul's writings. The Bible says it is appointed once to die. And after this, reincarnation. No. No. The great lie of Hinduism and Buddhism. The great lie of the New Age movement. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this, soul sleep. No. Purgatory. No. No, the Bible is very clear. The book of Hebrews is extremely clear. It is appointed unto mankind once to die, and after this judgment, every human being will stand before God, and he will separate sheep from goats. You can read about it. Jesus gave the longest extended narration on the topic in Matthew 25. The gospel is this. Jesus came to do for me what I could never do for myself. 
And at the moment a sinner repents and believes, all their sin, past, present, and future, is put on Christ, the whole thing, and all his righteousness is moved over to their account. There is nothing like it in any world religion, anywhere. That's why a sinful human being can stand before God and say, even in this life, I am righteous and I am perfect in his eyes. The Bible says that hell is real and the final destruction of all who do not believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? It means to hate your sin. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming others. And own up to your wretched life. There's no way to get in the kingdom of God unless you die to self. What does it mean to believe? I'm going to use strong language. It means submission to Jesus as master and commander. That's what it means. It's not Jesus is my co-pilot, Jesus is my homie, Jesus is my friend. He's king. And if somebody's king, you don't waltz in and just kind of flop down and say, Yo, bro! You walk in and you prostrate yourself and you worship them. That's what it means to believe. All in or not. And he'd rather have you say, I'm not, than fake it. Second summons and last summons this morning. The cross summons true Christians. I know not everyone here knows Christ. But if you do, the summons to you and I who name the name of Christ is full-on obedience to Jesus. The Bible teaches that true salvation, just like we've been saying, results in a transformed life. Not the next day necessarily or the next year. It will be slow and gradual, but there will be a growing pattern of these things in our lives. Paul says, for example, a growing pattern of self-denial, a growing pattern of serving others, a growing passion to follow Christ. Obedience. Do you know what the very first thing Jesus commands of any person who says they follow him? Immersion underwater. Why didn't I say baptism? Because the word baptizo, a verb in Greek, is not translated in our Bibles. It's been left as baptized. That's a Greek word. If you translate the verb baptizo, any New Testament scholar will tell you it means submerge, cover, or probably the best synonym, immersion. And every single baptism in the New Testament was immersion, underwater. Public identification with Christ, buried with Him, resurrected with Him. That's the very first issue of obedience. I hear people say, well, I'm praying about getting baptized. I got good news for you. You can stop praying about it. You don't need to pray about tithing. You don't need to pray about getting baptized. You don't need to pray about whether to be sexually pure. You don't need to pray about whether you should stay faithful to your spouse. You don't need to pray about, should I read my Bible? You just need to do it because they're issues of obedience. I just need to do them because they're commanded of me. The longer I sit there and noodle over them and don't do them, I am inviting curse on my life, not blessing. In other words, Jesus came to make followers, not fans. He came to make disciples, not admirers. And I've seen nobody state this better 
than the crazy Danish philosopher, yay Christian, Soren Kierkegaard. In his book, and it's not really a book, it's a work called Provocations. He had a marvelous paragraph. I have one typo in this, but that's okay. I'm going to read it anyways. Here it goes. The difference between an admirer and a follower still remains no matter where you are. The admirer, and there's lots of admirers in every church, never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Through in, though in words, phrases, and songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he praises Christ, but he renounces nothing and gives up nothing. Christ claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. His whole life on earth, from beginning to end, I love this last phrase, was destined solely to have followers and to make admirers impossible. He shooed admirers away. He called for total radical commitment. And that's what Paul here is calling us to. And again, that is the only path to joy. The sooner we get that in life, doesn't mean life's going to be easy, but the better it's going to go in terms of following Christ's footsteps and knowing joy and the peace that Christ gives no matter what. Father, I do want to pray for those here today who are running hard, that you would give them increasing desire to run hard for you. I also want to pray for those here today who maybe have a track record of growing self-indulgence. Father, would you help them confirm if they're truly saved or not? And if they're not, may they submit and surrender and find the joy of what it means to know Christ and to be alive with the risen Christ. Father, we, we plead with you to make our church a place where people are born again, hear the gospel, discipled and mentored, and go forth, follow, connect, make for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name.